Now, um, let's see. What was I going to say? Oh, we have a bunch of people who are sick today. So keep an eye out for people who aren't here. <laughs> and uh, send them a message and uh, tell them you love them and pray for them and all that stuff. Uh, like sickness hitting children is what's going on right now. But where we're going to be today is toward the bottom of page five. Last week, Dean covered for us the sections on love and justice, and I just want to wrap up with justice real briefly before moving on to talk about grace today. Uh, So page five is where we'll be, if you've got your notes, page five, and we'll be toward the bottom of page five. And just to uh, summarize for you, when we were talking last week about justice, this is Uh, What we were saying, as the perfectly just judge, God is the standard of truth and what is right. And that's actually a couple of your blanks. So if you missed last week, you can fill that in at the bottom of the section on justice there. As the perfectly just judge, God is the standard of truth and what is right. True justice always rests on the righteousness of God. Okay? You can't have justice, true justice, apart from the righteousness of God. And we closed on this thought, how amazing it is that God's omnipotence is matched by His justice. His power is only good. Remind me what omnipotence means. Yeah, good, good. All all powerful. Okay? So God has both all power and... Well, I won't say all. I'm going to say... Perfect for the sake of this. He has all power and he has perfect justice because of his righteousness. Now, can you imagine if God only had one of those? Imagine that he was all powerful, but he wasn't just. You've you've had bosses like that probably in your life, right? (laughs) Now imagine he's perfectly just. But he's not all-powerful. He can't bring it about. Can't do anything about it. Yeah. What hope is there for the Christian in that scenario? But if you have 100% power, 100% justice, now we have Christian hope working here, don't we? That God is going to make all things right and he's able to do it. He said he's going to do it. Joe, do you have a question or a thought there? I was just thinking, um, shouldn't have one without the other. Yes, that's right. That's a <laughs> you can't have one without the yeah, yeah. Sinatra, love and marriage yeah. goes together like a horse and carriage <laughs> it's an institute you can't disparage God has all power and perfect justice and that combination of course is real sweet All right. so now let's talk about grace Okay, that was just wrapping up a, a thought about justice and now we're getting into grace when we think about the grace of God We need to first recognize that God's grace is abundant and ever-present. As beings who are both limited and sinful, we are utterly dependent on God's grace. (laughs) So His grace is abundant. His grace is ever-present. So there's never a time when God takes a time out from His grace. Okay, Praise Him for that. And we, by contrast, we are beings who are limited and sinful. That's a bad combination. So we we just talked about a good combination here. You want to hear a bad combination? Being limited and being sinful. 
So basically, where God is on these things, we're not. We are limited and sinful, and we are utterly dependent on His grace because of that reality. Because we have limitations, because we have a propensity to rebel and work unrighteousness, we must appeal to the grace of God instead of trying to build our own righteousness. His grace is both common and special, achieving different results. And we'll talk through those with some passages here. And you see in the bottom of your page, at the bottom of page 5, we've got the distinction there between common grace and special grace. And we'll work through that here in just a moment. But first I want us to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. The very beginning of this book. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I, I like using this story to illustrate God's grace because it just... You don't hear that connection very often, and I think it's quite appropriate. I love this story. 1 Samuel chapter 1, and I'll read the first 20 verses of, of the book here. So find 1 Samuel. It's toward the front of your Old Testament. Okay. Um, you get the first five books through Deuteronomy, then Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1 with uh, verse 1. It says, now there was a certain man from that very confusing place, uh, very difficult to say that, that, that name, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, a bad start. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Interesting name. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And if you remember, we just went through Joshua. That's where they set up the, uh, the tabernacle at the end of the book of Joshua was in Shiloh. We just finished that book recently. And so that's why he was going there. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, interesting terminology, isn't it? Her rival however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Boy, this guy. All right. Verse 9. <laughs> Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. 
Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Two more verses. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. So, let me ask you, that was a longer story I just read for you. How does that story illustrate the grace of God? How does that story show us God's grace? I would say trust and faith. Okay, good. We, we go to God. Does the... The laser doesn't work on the TV, does it? Well, that's a shame. Uh, this word here, dependent. What was Hannah dependent upon God for? A son. She's unable to open her own womb. Do you see that language that's used throughout the passage that the Lord is in charge of this? This is the Lord's business of, of allowing people to bear children. And so Hannah goes to him. And does God owe this to Hannah? Absolutely not. Children are a what from the Lord? Inheritance or a gift. Okay, you think of these words that are used. These are, these are things that are given. These are words that express uh, something being given. And here, children are given to people by God. This is a, a gift of grace. It's not something that's owed. It's not something that's earned either, is it? Notice the Lord doesn't reply to Hannah and say, I heard your cry. But here's what you need to do if you want this. That's not it. But she appealed to God, and by His grace, she conceived. Okay? Now let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Uh, someone, well, I guess we don't need to turn there and read it out loud. Let's just, we can look at it together on the screen. This is Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said that God causes His Son, I love that terminology too, it's God's Son. Okay? He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is common grace. So now I'm, I'm going to talk about that distinction that's at the bottom of your page. Common grace and special grace. God's common grace is His general care for all of His creatures. He provides and cares for creation in love. Another aspect of this grace is the restraining of sin in the culture. So as you jot some notes down, I'll talk through that a bit. God's, God's common grace is His goodness that affects all people. I mean, if you thought long and hard, would you be able to come up with anybody in your mind who has never experienced the goodness of God in any way? Well, of course not. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you can think of uh, a child who was aborted and think, yeah, wow, that's, that's, that would be probably the most difficult case, right? Um, but everybody, even the gift of life itself, even having life, is a gift of God's grace. 
Uh, being able to experience what we experience in this life is a gift of grace. We don't cause ourselves to be born. Life itself is a gift. And Jesus here uses the illustration of the uh, environmental factors, the sun and the rain. And if, if you know farmers, surely you know some who are Christians and some who are not. And perhaps there's a Christian farmer that's right next door to a non-Christian farmer. And you don't get the sun shining on the Christian farmer, but not over here on this side of the property line. And the rain just falling on the Christian side and not on the non-Christian side. But God's common grace is really evidence for the non-believer that God exists, that he sends his son, he sends the rain, even on the unrighteous, that God is so good that he even allows those who reject him to experience some of his goodness. In this last sentence I put up here, that another aspect of this common grace is his restraining of sin in the culture. Think of this, are, is America as bad as it could be? Now, are we barreling that direction at lightning speed? <laughs> yes. <clears throat> but isn't there a reality, especially here, I mean, let's face it, a reality where we can just trust people? We can still trust people? Um, now, it's always a benefit when we can find help in our lives from a, a fellow believer. There's almost that instant trust whenever you know someone else confesses the gospel of Christ with you. But even then, like if you're looking for a babysitter or looking for someone to watch your house while you're away or pick up your mail, there, there are unbelievers you can find that you totally trust, aren't there? And that's an aspect of God's common grace because if it wasn't for God's common grace, what should they be doing? They should be living out all of their sin. Think about how you were before you were a Christian. Were you as bad as you could have been? No, maybe some nights you were, but not, not every night, okay? It, it was more of a rarity. And that's God's common grace. Now, let's contrast that with God's special grace. And this is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, very common passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is special grace as, as contrasted with common grace. God's special grace is His saving action in the life of a sinner. And this grace is efficacious. I'll explain that word in a moment. It always accomplishes its task. Okay, so there's a difference between this general care that God has for all of creation, where all people to some degree experience His grace, and what we're calling special grace. This is not common. It's uncommon grace. It's special. And it has to do with salvation. It's at least initially seen in the born-again experience. When a person is born again to new life in Christ, according to Ephesians and pretty much anywhere else you look in the Bible, you'll find it on every page it seems, this is God's sovereign grace in the life of a person. That He enters in and causes a person to be born again to a living hope. Okay, And this grace is efficacious, meaning there's a, there's a purpose in it, and that purpose always comes about. God's special grace comes with effects. That's what that word efficacious basically means. God's special grace comes with impact. And He will always accomplish His purposes in His special grace. When God sets out to redeem a fallen person, no one's going to stop God. That person will be redeemed. This is God's special grace in the life of His people, the lives of His people. 
Now, both common and special grace are undeserving. We want to make sure that this is really clear. God's common grace and special grace are undeserving. God owes His creatures nothing. And don't you know that to be true? God owes us nothing. He is God and we are not. He is good and we are not. He owes us nothing. So it's His grace that takes care of us in all these ways. The grace of God is directly connected to our hope in God. Without God's grace, we would have no hope. So turn to the top of page 6 now, and that's a couple of your blanks there, or one of your blanks. Without God's grace, we would have no hope. We must understand the goodness of God's grace. He is the giver, and we are the recipients. Okay? Without the grace of God assuring us that we are His... Assuring us that we have a righteousness that's not our own. Assuring us that we have a future inheritance, that we have eternal life. Without His grace speaking all of those things over us, we have no hope. Because you take away uh, God's grace, and you know what you're left with? Your works. If you don't have a gift from God, now you have a wage from God. Okay? If you don't have His grace, you have what you earn for yourself. And if your hope is found in what you earn for yourself, you have no hope. If you don't have a gift from God that's apart from your works, He is the good giver giving you. You're in a position of receiving. If you don't have this good gift from God, then what you're left with are your own efforts to conjure up your own hope. And that's not hope. But because God is gracious, because we have God's grace, we can have hope. God's grace excludes your work. You cannot earn a gift. If you earned it, it is not a gift. And, and this is a really basic reality to grasp. You can jot down Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23 is key on this. Perhaps some of you have it memorized. Where it says, let me pull it up so I... Say it right in the New American Standard Version. <laughs> no, not that one. Or yeah, that is that is that one. I memorized a lot of these in um, New King James. That was the Bible I used when I first became a believer. Yeah, for the wages. That is that is right, Dean. For the wages of sin is death. So a wage is not a gift. All right. Again, this is super basic. But a wage is not a gift. So if you are relying in any sense on your own efforts. So this is effort, work, earning. You could say self-righteousness. That's all of these things. That's what a wage is. So if you are relying on any of this... What have you earned for yourself according to Romans 6.23? What does it say? The wages of sin is death. All right. So this results in death for all people who rely not on God's grace but on themselves. That's the result. Now, the gift, this is God's grace in salvation. God's grace in salvation. And the result for this, it isn't death, of course, but what's the, what's the result? Good. Life. 
So this is a, a fundamental understanding that, that you should have. That it, it applies directly to the gospel, of course. It applies to every conversation you have with an unbeliever. That a wage is not a gift. You can have one or the other. You cannot have both. You cannot have both. There are some people you'll talk to that will want to talk out of both sides of their mouth and say that salvation is a gift, but I have all this that i got to do. Okay, well, salvation is either a gift or it isn't. Okay, it's, that's, it's really that simple. That's how the Bible presents it. It either is a gift or it isn't. Now, if it is a gift, it does result in life, and now we can have a conversation on how works and everything else play into all of that. But our fundamental starting point is that salvation is a gift of God's special grace. And if you try to sneak in, smuggle in works and earning and self-righteousness and all of that, you're, you're bringing in death into eternal life. You can't do that. Okay, Noah? Don't you need to work to live a longer life? I mean, you're, we're all going to die eventually. True. So, <laughs> yeah. but, but believing in God and believing in Jesus, that is going to give us that eternal life. But don't you need to work to live longer? Because I could just stop. Like, let's say I was an adult. I could just stop working and stop eating and find my death sooner and then get life sooner. Yeah, so this isn't talking about stewardship of the body. Well, that's what you're bringing up. Should we be good stewards of our body? Yeah, absolutely. But, that, but this is a, the spiritual reality of life, okay? Not the physical. Lizzie. So when you're, I guess, kind of correlating it to James, if your actions don't match your belief, then, you know, you have to bring yourself back to the gospel? Yes. Oh, yeah. Obviously. Yes, because um, we looked earlier at Ephesians um, 2, 8, and 9, but Ephesians 2, 10 is key here. So this is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is, by grace we are saved through faith. Okay? But what does Ephesians 2, 10 say? Does anybody know? It starts by saying, for we are Christ's workmanship. Created unto Yes, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so what you have is this initial saving grace, which always leads to these works that we walk in. Because God prepared them beforehand. Good truth produces good fruit. Yes, the, the fundamental teachings from Jesus. You can know a tree by its fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. We looked at this in the, the sermon last week. Can you go to a briar, briar bush and bring out grapes? Well, no, you can't. Okay. So there's a reality of when you have a changed heart by God's grace, there are works that are going to follow. And to Lizzie's point, in someone's life, if there's a continual pattern of just rejecting the ways of God, well, that's bad fruit, isn't it? And then you do go back to the gospel because these two are linked. I mean, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it's all linked right there in the text, okay? Okay, a um, couple more thoughts on grace. I added this slide so you don't have it in your notes, but you can maybe jot down some thoughts if you'd like. God is gracious. That's the proper term for the attribute. So we don't have a text that says God is grace like we have a text that says God is love. But we know, of course, that God is gracious. Grace is the nature of his actions toward us as Christians. Or even just human beings uh, because of common grace. The grace of God is ultimately seen in Jesus Christ. John 1.17 
And grace is the basis of the Christian's relationship with God. Someone want to grab John 1, 17? And I'll grab uh, Romans 3. Who's got John 1 for us? John 1, 17. Okay. Dean's got it. And again, what we're highlighting here in John 1 is how the grace of God is ultimately seen. The ultimate picture of God's grace is in the person of Jesus Christ. You want to know what grace is like? Go study Jesus. You want to know more about the grace of God? Get to know Jesus. That's John 1.17. Go ahead, Dean. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law was given to Moses. Now, we're setting up a contrast here. That's where John is. The law was given through Moses. These cold commandments written in stone. Now, the law is holy. The law is just. The law is good. But the law is not grace. Holy, just, and good. And so through Moses, you have the law established. Here it is. Here is justice with no grace. And then, what does it say, Dean? But grace. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Good. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus. So Jesus comes along now. He didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And in him we find grace. Yes, Lizzie? So if God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, yep. why is it that during that period Jesus didn't sacrifice himself yet? But there, how was there grace in the Old Testament? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we see it in salvation. Okay, Everybody who was saved in the, in the, uh, under the Mosaic Covenant was saved just as Abraham was saved through faith. Uh, Abraham was called to leave his country and to go, and by faith he followed. By faith, Abraham believed God that he would have descendants, even though he was as good as dead, the New Testament says. So faith has always been God's program for his creatures made in his image to relate to him. And if it's by faith, it's by grace. So uh, again, just a real basic fundamental foundational point. Salvation has always been by faith. Now there are different administrations throughout God's program. I call them dispensations. The Bible calls them dispensations. Um, there are different times where God relates differently to his people. So for instance, we can go to uh, Red Lobster and we can get all the seafood we want wrapped in bacon. And how great is that, right? Because Leviticus 11 doesn't hang over us as something that we're under. We're not under the law, but we're under grace. Uh, and so we are now in this dispensation of God building his church of Jews and Gentiles together as one new man under grace. That's what, that's what we're doing here during this time. That doesn't mean God's character changes. That doesn't mean he was different then and now he's new. It just means he has different ways of relating. You can even go back to the garden and Adam and Eve, they were allowed to eat plants, vegetables. Well, then later they could eat meat. Okay, uh, And then later it was restricted on what kind of meat they could eat. So you have this, these dietary laws changing or dietary rules changing throughout time. But God never changed. Just the, the uh, governing principles that he had over man have developed and changed. And they all speak to his character in different ways. And we now have grace during this time because Jesus has come. And so we're no longer under the law. No word realized helps. Yeah, right. It's, it's signifying it was there. Yep. But we didn't see it. Not as clearly as we do now. Right. Right. And Jesus is here to reveal that. Yep. Yep. Yes. Okay. So you said that, you know, and Adam and Eve, they were able to eat 
class and stuff. But then Cain and Abel, they both offered different things to God. One was animals and the other was yep. plants. Why is it that God favored one that gave, uh, was it Abel? That gave, that gave animals if that wasn't like even a thing. And, and later in the Bible it says that, you know, like in the Psalms where it works, I don't know where exactly, but it talks about that, you know, everything is God's, or, you know, like, everything like God needs it, you know. So, why is it that God favored Abel more than Cain? Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 tells us that it was by faith that Abel offered up a better sacrifice than Cain. So it was faith. And it wasn't the first sacrifice. It wasn't like that uh, That was a novel idea to give a sacrifice. Do you know where the first sacrifice was in Genesis? Um, after sin. Yes, after sin, God made cloaks of skin to put on Adam and Eve to cover them, which is an act of His grace in a place where we see grace in the Old Testament, that God didn't immediately kill Adam and Eve, but He let them continue to live in knowledge, more knowledge of who He is and how they should relate to Him and an understanding of His grace that He would go make a sacrifice, take the skins of animals and put them on Him, which is just yet another place where you can find the gospel seed uh, being planted in the Old Testament. Yes, Melissa? We also see the grace in just choosing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because there was nothing special yes. about them. And grace in saving Noah. Noah's Yep. Yep. It says uh, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Not that Noah earned something from God, but he found favor. Okay, that's grace. All right, uh, Romans 3. I just want to read to you these five verses here. 21 to 24, it says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now listen to this verse. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We have a relationship with God that's based on grace, not on law. And then Romans 5.21 says, As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace reigns. Grace has like a, a rulership in and among God's people. Not the law, not the commands in stone, but grace. Okay? Now let's talk about mercy. I'm going a little bit faster now because we have several verses to look at here with mercy. And I want to wrap this lesson up today. God's mercy, like His grace, is undeserving. There's your note to fill in there. God's, great, or God's mercy is undeserving. It is purposeful and directly related to His patience. Why didn't God thump you over the head or squash you like you deserved I would say yesterday, but the truth is probably this morning. Huh? <laughs> well, because he's merciful. He's patient with us because he is a God of mercy. Not a God of, uh, you know, immediate retribution, but he's long-suffering. This mercy is constant and praise-inspiring for his people. Without his mercy, there is no forgiveness. Without his mercy, there is no forgiveness. We rely solely on the grace of God to supply and the mercy of God to forgive, don't we? And I have these verses uh, for you on the sheet there. 
Um, let's look at these uh, one by one. I kind of volunteer for each of these, starting with 2 Samuel 24. Who can get 2 Samuel 24 for the class? Evelyn, thank you. Psalm 23, the whole psalm. It's only like seven or eight verses, I think. And maybe some of you know it by heart. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, who can get that one for us? Mandy, thank you. And Luke 6, the words of Christ. Luke 6, 35 and 36. Who's got this one? Luke 6, 35 and 36. Dean's got it. Okay. So uh, let's focus on each one of these, uh, remembering the mercy of God and how that's manifested. Starting with 2 Samuel 24, verses 13 and 14. Go ahead, Evelyn. So that came to David and told him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Uh, now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Do not let me fall into the hand of man. All right. So David here, you can read about the context of that later if you'd like. But David here is being confronted with the discipline that Israel deserves. Israel had strayed from the ways of the Lord. And now you have Gad coming to David and saying, all right, this is a bad situation. What are you going to do, David? Because God is angry with the people of Israel. And look at David's response in verse 14. I think I may have it here. Yeah. Verse 14. David says, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. He didn't want to fall into the hand of man. He wanted to fall into the hand of the Lord, because the Lord's mercies are great. So in times of distress, we can follow David's lead here and appeal to God's mercy in times of, in times of need. Uh, it's, again, a you know, famous verse, Lamentations 3.23. God's mercies are new every morning. Aren't we thankful for that? You wake up, you take your breath, you blink your eyes, and you say, Thank you, Lord. There's mercy today. New every day. All right, Psalm 23. Mandy. The Lord is my shepherd, my shepherd one. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your God and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mm. Yep, that's a good one. There's a reason why you've heard that one many times before. Uh, There's just a lot in those six verses that encourages the Christian. Verse 6, surely goodness and hesed, that's the Hebrew word, and I'm going to mention that word in the sermon today too. That's the word that means loving kindness or mercy from God. His compassionate care. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's amazing. It's God's mercy. And then uh, what was the other one? 
Luke. Dean, you got that one. Luke 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. All right, so this brings up the, this word again, communicable. It wasn't in that text, but uh, we're talking about communicable attributes of God. And if you need to remind yourself, you can go back to uh, page three. What is a communicable attribute? If you've got your notes with you, page three, what is a communicable attribute of God? He shares with us. Good. An attribute that God shares with us that we can imitate to some degree. And we saw it in that passage where Jesus says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. That's the calling on the Christian. So you've come to know the Lord. You've experienced the mercies of God in salvation. You know His mercies are new every morning, as Lamentations 3 says. You know that goodness and mercy are following you all the days of your life. Well, also in this life then, with those realities in mind, you are to imitate God in His mercy. Do you have opportunity to show mercy to people? <laughs> yes, you do. And when you do so, you're imitating God and His goodness. Yes, Joe? Define mercy. Define mercy. That is next. Okay? First is grace. Okay? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You see this on your sheet, the middle of page 6? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And for the Christian, the, the starting point for that is justification. Did we deserve to be declared innocent before God? To be counted as the righteous ones? Well, no, we didn't deserve that. So grace, we got something that we didn't deserve. And mercy is you not getting what you deserve. You deserve punishment, don't you? You, de you deserve judgment from God in His wrath because of your willful rebellion, because of the ways that you've said to your Maker, no, I don't like your ways. I like my ways. I'm going to establish my own righteousness. Well, you deserve punishment for that. Yet God, in His mercy withholds that punishment from you. He placed that punishment on His Son. And you then get to experience His mercy. You don't get what you deserve. Instead, you get what you don't deserve, which is grace. Does that help, Joe? Yes. Do we deserve anything? No. no. Well, punishment and judgment, yeah. <laughs> because someone said that to me. You deserve it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll say it jokingly sometimes uh, to Melissa. Be like, I deserve this. If I'm going to eat a pecan pie or something, you know. But it has to be a joke, right? Because if we're honest with ourselves and we know who we are and what we've done, we don't deserve anything good. And that's what makes it a gift. Grace is a gift. The wages of sin is death, and we've got a lot of sin. We've got a lot of wages we've racked up, right? But God, in His kindness, He has shown us grace and mercy. Let's look at a few more verses. Let's look at all these together. Psalm 103.8. Let's turn there together. Psalm 103. And I might read a little bit more than just verse 8. We'll start at verse 6 together. Psalm 103, 
We'll start at 6. And in this passage, we're seeing how God's mercy factors into His relationship with mankind. Psalm 103, starting in verse 6. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, and here's our word again, Hesed, mercy, loving kindness. You think verse 8 would be a good memory verse for you? I think so. Yahweh, the Lord, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy, or loving kindness. It's a really, really good verse. And as we are confronted with our sin and the just punishment it deserves... We find astounding comfort in the fact that God's mercy is shown to us. He is ready to forgive. There are passages that speak that way about God, that He is ready to forgive. That can't be said of us all the time, can it? We need need time to think about it before we're ready to forgive. You know that God never needs time? Now, I want to connect this back to some of the things we've already learned. God is infinite. He exists outside of time. God, God knows the beginning from the end. He never needs time for anything. That's a, that's a creaturely experience is time. God doesn't live within time as we do. And so, because of His merciful nature, it can be said of God that 24-7, 365, without exception, He doesn't take breaks for holidays, God is ready to forgive. Because you combine His mercy with His infinity... You've got a God who's always there, ready to hear the repentant cry of one of His creatures. That's Christian theology. That's good stuff. God is good to those in distress, and those who appeal to Him for mercy will get it. Those who appeal to God for mercy will get it. And we're going to see this in uh, the sermon today. We're looking at Psalm 28. But those who appeal to God for mercy will get it. Now let's look together at Matthew 5-7. This is again going to the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. I know many of you like the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who, blessed are those who, on and on it goes. Well, would someone read Matthew 5-7 for us? Just the one verse. Matthew 5-7. Who's got it? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay. Again, a very simple verse to memorize. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, you think that's important? (coughs) Yeah. Those who have no mercy, should you expect to receive mercy? Jesus talked about this in His parables, didn't He? About the the, uh, demanding people in life who require of others really strict things. And then when it's time for them to get what they deserve, they appeal Oh, please forgive me. Show mercy, please. Well, if you're treating other people in such a harsh way, what should you expect from God? But blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's a great principle of life. In Hebrews 4.16, a fantastic verse. This is one you can really anchor yourself to. Let us draw near with confidence... 
to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's your promise, Christian. You draw near to the throne of grace, and this doesn't have anything to do with the geographical location. This doesn't mean get in your car and drive down here to the church property. That's not what that means. That doesn't mean have some experience where you're taken to the third heaven, and then you can go before the throne of grace. That's not what that means. It means as a believer who has been exalted with Christ, God has seated you with Christ in the heavenly places as a believer. Now you can appeal to Him, your advocate, in His name. You can go directly to God and you can ask for mercy in time of need. And you'll find mercy and help and grace in time of need. That's a great promise, isn't it? And we have it as Christians on the basis of what Christ has done. Without God's love, His justice, His grace, and His mercy, there is no such thing as salvation in Christ. That's your last blank to fill in. These are the four communicable attributes we've looked at for this class. God's love, justice, grace, and mercy. Without those things, there is no such thing as salvation. We have no salvation in Christ. Can someone explain that one to me? How is it that we need love, justice, grace, and mercy in Christian salvation? Say that again. That's what we're given. Yeah. 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 Well, let's look back together at page five. Okay. Hopefully you were able to follow along uh, with last week's lesson. But if you look under love, there's this blank. It's the the third fill-in-the-blank line. God's love is why the Father sent His Son and why the Son emptied Himself. How does John 3.16 start? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So if we didn't know anything of the love of God, if God didn't have love, there's no sacrifice from Jesus Christ. He's not sent into the world. And in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about the Son emptying Himself. That Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but in great humility, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's look at justice. We looked at several passages that described God's justice. And perhaps one of the notes you made was in reference to our sin. God doesn't just uh, forget our sin without taking care of it, does He? He wouldn't be just if He did. Right. For God to be just, He has to address every sin. And not just, well, they just dissolve. It's like they, they, you know, they just, we'll forget about it and sweep it under the rug. That's not how God deals with sin. But every sin is punished and paid for one way or another. Either by you bearing your own punishment or by your substitute, Jesus Christ, bearing the punishment that you deserved. That's how God upholds his justice. And that's how God remains good. Because a God who just overlooks certain offenses and, again, sweeps them under the rug... He's not just anymore, is he? 
Okay? And then, of course, God's grace and His mercy, we recognize His special grace. That's what comes into our lives, affecting salvation through the gospel. And His mercy is what grants us forgiveness of sins. So without His love, justice, grace, and mercy, there is no thing, no such thing as salvation in Christ. Okay? Jordan. Where does repentance fall into this? Yeah, we will get into uh, that. I mean, this is a long class, so we will get into that when it comes to soteriology, the study of salvation. But uh, to you know, briefly touch on it, uh, last week we looked at Psalm seventeen or Psalm seven rather, and in Psalm seven verse twelve, I believe it is, it says that if man does not repent, God has his flaming arrows ready. Okay. And so that that's really what it all hinges on is a man turning. It starts in the mind, it leads to a change of action, but a man changing his mind toward God and saying, I, I do not want my sin, I want you, God, that's the, that's the distinction between the, the just or the sin, the justified, rather, and those who are in their sin. Yes, Lizzie? Is God's love unconditional or unconditional? It is unconditional. Why do people make that argument? I don't know. What have you heard? When God's love is unconditional, it's only for the people that have, who fear Him. Yeah, so, there, so there's a, a distinction between the love God has generally for all of creation and the love God has for His people. So you can think of like common grace and special grace that we talked through. His love, in a sense, is the same. Uh, for instance, I believe that God does love the world and, and all of His creation with a general, comprehensive love. But if you look at Psalm 5.5, it says, God hates sinners. It doesn't, we don't have a verse in the Bible that says God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Some of us wish that was in the Bible, it's just not there. In fact, we have a verse that says God hates sinners. So now what do you do with that? Well, there's a love that he has generally for all of his creation. But we recognize that that relationship that he has with those who are in their sin, rebelling against him, those who have rejected him, that's a different type of love that he has than with his children, those who have been redeemed. Now, um, so if someone wants to say that that's conditional, whatever, but that, that is a distinction that's in Scripture. We as his children, we appeal to his unconditional love in that when we sin, he doesn't love us any less. Right? Because we are in Christ. And, and just as the Father has this love for his only begotten Son, he has that, that love then for us who are in his Son. And so we are protected and identified with His Son, and we receive the love of God in that sense. And it's unconditional. Okay? Good. We have five minutes, and I have to go to the bathroom. So <laughs> we, we can uh, go for five more minutes, or I can go now. So, I don't know what you would prefer. Okay, that sounds good, Joe. Someone had to say it. Thanks. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much for, uh, again, this day and this time that we have together in this study. Please help us to serve you well with the, the knowledge that you've given to us through your word, that we would honor you rightly in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.